Only our great God could take pain and make it a gain for us because it worked with his son, Jesus. It's time now to dismiss our young people, our first and second graders to uh, junior church right out those doors uh, if they'd like to head that way. For the rest of you, can you turn in your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 1 as we start our second week or we continue in our study of Nehemiah. Uh, Today we'll look at chapter 1 together. Thank you, Steve, for reading it for us. What a joy it is on Mother's Day to see so many of our young folks go. What a blessing. Let us turn our hearts, first of all, to Jesus and ask him to come in power and spirit to uh, bless the preaching of his word. Let's pray together. Father God, would you come with such power through the presence of the spirit of Jesus today to bring yourself glory, to help us understand an ancient text that is living and active today so that we can be more shaped to be like Jesus because of your word that we sit under and the power of your spirit that changes us from the inside out because of the reality of the blood of Christ that has made us new and the righteousness that we wear by your grace that makes us beautiful. So may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable and pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. We certainly can't forget those who, again, this Sunday are are suffering because of tornadoes, the amazing devastation. Yet I love to start hearing the the stories that start percolating, especially with Christians that want to love one another and show one another the love of Christ. Uh, I I read recently, even this morning, about how churches this morning are coming together. Uh, Pastors are making calls to their brothers and sisters across the street that maybe they got more of a sanctuary than those across the street do. And and Baptists and Assemblies of God and and Presbyterians and others are coming together uh, under the name of Jesus. And, And again, I rejoice in the reality that even in the rubble, God brings good things, does he not? And I know this is a giving church, and I know this is a loving church, and I know many of you are, are anxious and waiting, say, how do we respond? And how, how do we show our love? How do we show uh, our commitment that we're there with them? Uh, now our, our denomination is, is uh, pulling together resources. If immediately you want to give, you can. Uh, uh, you can make a check payable uh, uh, to Disaster Relief, uh, to Orangewood, and we'll make sure it goes there. But we're finding out that right now there's a lot of uh, government agencies in place, and we're kind of waiting to see uh, when they uh, do their deal and we can go and the wave can come after them. So more help is on its way, I'm sure. But let me ask you a question. What would you do? What would you do if tornadoes hit our place? What would you do if your house was in the lines? What would be your first or second or third course of action? Now, I'm asking you this. It's kind of a rhetorical question. I want you to make a mental note. I mean, just, just thinking, we, we know this feeling. We've had Charlie and other hurricanes come through, and we've seen what devastation can happen uh, through natural disasters. But what are those things that you would immediately do? The people you try to call if you could, or the things you try to get ready or together. What would you do? Let me ask you a question. Honestly, where would prayer be on that list? What number? 
You know, I think oftentimes, uh, especially a church like this, that God is blessing and we long to be salt and light and we long to make a difference in our community. And oftentimes we long for action. And I know it's true with me, especially if I see a need, I just want to jump right in and, and I, I want to try to help, especially if I can help in a way that makes me look good, right? Especially in a way that I can help that others can notice or they can notice even Orangewood and they can say, well, look at that church. But I got to sadly say that, that prayer it isn't always the first thing that, that emerges, but it really should be. And anything that we do and any action that we take, we need to have a, a foundation of prayer. I mean, this should be the house of God and the house of prayer. And we should be a people who are a praying people. And I think in reality, uh, we're not. Our, our prayer lives are pretty anemic. They're pretty thin. And maybe it's just because uh, the pastor's life is that way at times too. And when we find Nehemiah, we find Nehemiah in the midst of rubble. We, 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 he's not ex- actually there. It's the people of Nehemiah's. The God's people are in rubble. They're in ruins. It wasn't a natural disaster. It was an enemy. It was an enemy that came into God's city, Jerusalem, and they sacked it. I mean, they, they destroyed it. They burnt it. They, they destroyed the temple. I mean, they, they knocked down the wall. They, they made this place a, a place of scorn and ridicule. They made the place so devastatingly bad that anybody who walked near Jerusalem says, man, oh man, what's up with that place? That God has forsaken those people. So there's where we find Nehemiah. What we're going to find about Nehemiah, he was an amazing leader. He's an amazing man of action. But it all begins with the reality that he was an amazing man of prayer. The first thing he did when he heard devastating news is he wept for days. The first thing he did was he, he fasted and, and he prayed. And his motto would be, we must bow down first before we rise up. How many of us uh, immediately hear a need and we want to rise up? Is it our natural inclination? Is it our natural way, once tough things come, to immediately pray and seek God's face? Maybe even for days before we go to action. Let me go uh, give you an introduction to Nehemiah. If you have your Bibles, open them up with me. Let's look at Nehemiah 1. It's interesting, uh, first of all, uh, when we see Nehemiah, uh, here's the setting. Uh, he is going to call us uh, together through uh, the Holy Spirit and God's word that we're to, to build together. We're going to build the kingdom of God in advance. But he's going to show us, hey, listen, there's got to be a foundation of prayer. He's going to teach us, even in this first chapter, how to pray. We're going to look at a, a great little way he uh, shows us uh, how to pray. It will help us uh, to remind us. And lastly, we'll have a call to prayer. As we look at Nehemiah 1, we see that there's three names that are given to us. Nehemiah. You know what that means? God is comforted. Isn't that great? Isn't it great to know that even God uses names and what they mean in the midst of difficult situation? Uh, He is the son of his father, uh, Hakali. And it means this, wait on God. Wait on God. God is our comfort. Wait on God. Hananiah, his brother, this could, be, this could be a Jewish brother, but it looks like we read this closely, except, especially in chapter 7, he comes up again. This probably is a blood brother, maybe not, but his, his name means God is gracious. So right out of the bat, when we talk about Nehemiah, we're going to see God is a comforter, and he's one we're to wait on. And not only that, but he is a gracious and merciful God. Isn't that good news? If you come in here with a burden and a broken heart, like most of us, 
Just know right away that God wants to start off this whole story by telling you, I'm a comforter, wait on me, and I am gracious. What an amazing God. The setting of this story is Susa. Uh, Susa is in Iran. It's close to the border of Iraq. Uh, It's the summer palace of Persian kings. It's the same setting where Esther's story takes place. Uh, The time of this, it says, Chislev was the month. The month, that's like November, December time. It's in the 20th year. What does 20th year mean? It's, it's clearly a king's reign. Uh, good biblical scholarship. Digging a little bit deeper. We're going to find Xerxes, uh, uh, King Xerxes. If you saw 300, that uh, was a depiction of who he was. There were three with that great name. I mean, why not keep that great name going? Uh, you'll probably, we probably believe that this is the first one. So amazingly, the setting, sometimes the Bible doesn't give us as much clarity, but we're thinking that we could tell what this time of this book was written. It was December 445 BC. That's the time of uh, what was happening. We also find out about Nehemiah, what he was able to do. Humbly, he says, I'm a cupbearer to the king. Humbly, uh, this this Jewish exile uh, was in, 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 in that city of Susa. He had front row seat to the king. And a cupbearer means more than the fact that he's just tasting the wine. This is like a cabinet member. This is somebody very, very close to the most powerful man in the world. How important are people who are close to powerful men? Interesting. What about the courier to Ben Laden? You know, it's interesting, those who are close, uh, what they have access to and, and how we were able to, uh, to find things. But what's the purpose of this whole book? Well, the purpose is, is that God's saying, listen, Jerusalem's in great trouble and the people there are in great trouble. Matter of fact, there's shame on the people in the city because uh, the, the, the walls have been destroyed. The temple has been destroyed. And he gets this news and he begins to pray and fast. Now, here's a really interesting thing. It was 140 years since the temple and the walls were destroyed. So you read this, you're thinking, wow, this must be breaking headline news. But the reality is this has happened sometime. Nehemiah knew uh, what happened. Babylon went in there and destroyed the place in 586. It's like 141 years later. We also read through Ezra that they were trying to rebuild the walls and there was so much opposition. There were so many things that were failing, so many false starts. But the reality is, is this, here's the setting. You have this man, Nehemiah, who's got a very close relationship with the most powerful man in the world. And he gets news about the people back in Jerusalem. And he gets news about the condition of the city. And God absolutely breaks his heart. I mean, it breaks it so much that he must fast and pray for days before he does anything. First point is this, remember, we will never change and we will never move until God breaks our heart of a current situation. It was amazing. Over 140 years have gone by, but now was the time for God's spirit to come on Nehemiah, so much so that he would spend days weeping over what was happening. So what does he do? He says, well, we got to build on a foundation of prayer in verses one through three. Now, let me ask you a very difficult question. And this is a churchy question and you can answer it in Sunday mode and just fly right over it. But let me ask you an honest question. I'd love an honest response in your own heart. Do you really pr- believe that prayer is foundational? Do you really believe that in your life and, and your job and your finances and your church that prayer is foundational. Certainly, we know Nehemiah did. 
Jacques Ellul was a, a French uh, sociologist uh, who, uh, who I love. I love a lot of his writing. Sometimes hard to read, but he really wanted to engage culture. And he says this about the modern man. And he wrote this in 1970 in France. But here's what he wrote. He, so, he wrote, the man of our times does not know how to pray. Man, let's see if this fits you or not. The man of our times does not know how to pray much more than that. He has neither the desire nor the need to do so. He does not find the deep source of prayer within himself. Elul says, I'm acquainted with that man. I know him well. It is I myself. Man, those are, those are haunting words. Because I think I could say the exact same things. Foundation of prayer, we're going to actually start with a negative. Look at those, those who don't pray. The reason we wouldn't start with a foundation of prayer if you want to follow along your bulletin, you'll see an outline there. The foundation of prayer. Well, the self-sufficient don't pray. Those who have a self-sufficiency don't pray. Why? Because this is pretty easy. The self-sufficient don't see the need to pray. Those who are self-sufficient aren't saying daily, our Father who art in heaven, give us this day our daily bread. Why? Because we're self-sufficient. Do you know how many things that God wants you to do and own and obtain on your own? Do you know how many things in this life God wants you to do with your own strength, your own acumen, your own resources? Do you know how many things God wants you to do for just you? Ready for this? Nothing. He says, I want you to do all things in Christ Jesus. I want you to abide in me as you abide in me, as you have a relationship with me, as you rest in me, as you find your identity in me, as you find your your source of strength in me, as you find your purpose in me, then you can do all things through Christ. You know, it's amazing that Jesus didn't come just to get us across the finish line. Jesus didn't come just to open up heaven. Jesus came for us to have an amazingly different way of living. Where now we live our lives not with self-sufficiency. We live our lives with Christ's sufficiency. What a model Jesus was. What a model, although being the very nature, God would empty himself, humble himself. Say, I can do nothing apart from the Father. I can do nothing. I mean, there, there's, there's, there's this need that God, the Son, is a second person of the Trinity who will still spend all night in prayer, not seeking his own self-sufficiency, but looking for his Father for strength. Those who don't pray are self-sufficient. Is that you? Oh, how the American way teaches us that's how we're to be. That's not the Christian way. Those that are self-satisfied don't pray. The self-satisfied don't pray because why? They don't want to pray. They're satisfied. They're certainly not praying, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as is in heaven. Because they're satisfied with where they are. They're satisfied with things in their own life and the way things are happening. But God has placed in us his Holy Spirit and he tells us that we're to pray that his kingdom would come, that his will would be done. Do you know what God wants us to be satisfied in? One thing, one thing, Jesus and Jesus alone. The only thing he wants us to delight in, be satisfied in, find our meaning in, everything else should, should be, have a deep enough hole or enough brokenness that we long for more. That we long to be more Christ-like. We long to be more like Jesus, our big brother and our savior. Do you have a self-satisfaction in your life and your circumstances 
your needs that are keeping you from praying. Lastly, that will keep us in this point uh, from praying is for this foundation of prayer is the self-righteous don't pray. The self-righteous, those who feel that they have no need to pray. I don't have to. I'm a good person. You know, I give money to the poor. I, I speak nicely to folks. Uh, um, you know, I pay my taxes and, and really uh, try to do the right thing. The self-righteous don't need to pray. Do you know what God thinks of self-righteousness? It's interesting, the book of Isaiah, Isaiah 64, 6, he says, our, our righteous acts in the holy God's eyes, I mean, they're, they're, they're filthy rags. They're, they're filthy. They're disgusting. Now, let, let's think about this for a minute. Uh, God is holy, and he wants a relationship with us, and he wants us to be righteous in his sight. His sight. And the, really, the only way that we are going to be in his sight is to be righteous, and he knows that. And God just can't wink at sin. And so God deals with a sin problem. He deals with it through the blood of Christ that makes us uh, clean. But he does more than that. You ready for this? God has this exchange take place where Christ becomes our sin, really becomes our sin. And we obtain by God's grace through faith the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Now listen, track with me here a little bit. I'm getting a little wordy. I'm getting a little Christian language. We can't miss this. God wants us to live our lives not as self-righteous because it's repugnant to him. He wants us to live our lives with what we call an alien righteousness, God's righteousness on us. Amazingly. And think of this. When we try to live our lives pleasing God in our own way with our own righteousness and we fail to pray, can you imagine what the father's thinking right now? Thinking of that? Wait a minute. I don't want that smelly, stinky, foul, completely sin-torn righteousness. Don't try to build on that. That's ridiculous. I've given you something so much better. A completed righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. What does this mean for us? We now live our lives in freedom... Because we don't have to try, to try to earn our salvation or try to please God in our own righteousness. We now get to wear Christ's righteousness even in the midst of our own brokenness. Is that not good news? So we now have to seek God in Christ knowing that it's not our self-righteousness. The self-righteous don't pray. The self-sufficient don't pray. The self-satisfied don't pray. How is it with you? May God give us a hunger and a broken heart for Christ and what he has done for us. Nehemiah was a man of prayer and he was a man of prayer before he was a man of action. Let me tell you something. Nehemiah was a man of action. He's going to build the walls in Jerusalem in 50 some odd days. This is an amazing leader. This guy's not just sitting around. I mean, this guy is going to do some amazing things for God, but where does he start? He starts in prayer. I have written in my notes that it's hard to teach a man who's not thirsty to drink. And it's hard to teach someone to pray who isn't thirsty for the righteousness of God, the relationship with God, and what God is doing. I love what Lincoln said in the midst of the Civil War. Lincoln said this, The situation around, around me is driving me to my knees in prayer. I need more wisdom that I have and that is available to me through those around me. I must pray. I am not sufficient in and of myself. I am not satisfied in and of myself. I can't do it in and of my own righteousness. I must pray. Let me ask this question. It's very important. What do you think God was doing when Nehemiah was praying? What do you think God was doing? 
I mean, here you got a guy like weeping and fasting and praying and, and telling him, pouring out his heart about what's happening in Jerusalem and the remnant and all the bad things. What do you think God was doing? I think he was like taking notes. Oh, Jerusalem, it's, oh, it's, it's ransacked. Oh, the gates are still burnt. Oh, okay. Do you think that Nehemiah was telling God anything he didn't know? If that's the case, you don't understand God, the God who knows all things. Was it really for God? Did, did God need five days of prayer and fasting to ramp him up to finally get off his backside and do something good? Was it really for God? Did God need Nehemiah's prayers to do anything? You see, God does hear our prayers and God calls us to pray. and He loves us in prayer with him and pouring our hearts out for him, to him. But you know what? They're really for us. They're really for us. If you're going to go build anything of the Lord, you've got to spend time with the Lord. If you're going to do anything that God is going to put a stamp of approval on, really, it's our aligning our lives, our souls, our wills, our minds to God. And not so much trying to wedge him into our plans. I think we get missed that. That's really what prayer is about. So Nehemiah tells us the acts of prayer. In verses, uh, uh, acts of prayer, uh, from there, uh, basically you're going to see how to pray, uh, adoration in verses four and five, confession and sin in verses six and seven, thanksgiving in verses eight and 10, and supplication in verse 11. Let's start with adoration. Uh, let's look again at verses four and five. What's he saying about God? He, oh, oh Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God. If you have a King James Bible with you, it says the great and terrible God, the mighty God. What an amazing God this is. What is he saying? He is saying this about God in prayer. God, you are a God who is in control. God, you are the creator. You are sustainer. You are great. You are awesome. You are mighty. When God calls us to pray, he wants us to start with a heart of praise, acknowledging who he is and his amazing might. It puts him in the rightful spot and it puts us in the rightful spot. But it's more than that. It's a God who's faithful. It says this in that prayer. God, you keep, you keep your covenant. You keep your promises. And it says that there's some conditions there. You, there's some conditions of you'll do your part if we do our part. But you know what? Something about this incredible God, his promises in the Old Testament that say, I'm going to do this. If you do that, you ready for this? Jesus comes on the scene and says, all the conditions, everything that you had to meet, that you failed to meet to obtain God's promises, I'm going to meet them in my body. I'm going to do it in my life, in my ministry. And I'm going to die the death that you deserve for messing up and not making his promises. All the blessings I'm going to secure for you. All the curses I'm going to absorb for you so that God can be faithful. So that all of God's promises are yes in Christ Jesus. So this God, he is mighty. This God, he is faithful. And the word it says about this God, he has loving kindness. It's this, this Hebrew word hesed, that God is, is a loving, merciful, covenant keeping, does everything he says he's going to do. He's a loving, kind, merciful God. We should adore him in prayer. Thank you, God, that you are mighty. Thank you, God, that you are faithful. Thank you, God, that you are merciful and kind. It's a God who hears and listens. Isn't it great the way that he describes that? You hear my prayers. They're not bouncing off the, the ceiling. You hear them. You listen. 
And this is a God who acts in time. God says, I will do all things for my glory. I will act in time. I'll act in your life. I'll act in this church. I will do all things for your good. I might have to redefine good for you in my glory. In this Acts, there's a confession of sin. He says there's a corporate sin. Our fathers have sinned, but there's also personal sin. Even my father's house and I have sinned. Are you confessing your sins to God? It'll be a great sign if you're growing in Jesus Christ. Because the more you grow to become like Jesus, the closer you get to the light. And the closer you get to the light, the more dirt you see. And the more dirt you see, the more we should be repenting in prayer. And the reality is, leaders, we should be like Nehemiah. We should be chief repenters. We should be the ones who are leading the charge saying, God, forgive me. Forgive my house for how, how, how flippantly we take you and your commands. I hope you see in your pastors and your leaders those who are repenting and confessing sins. Thanksgiving in verses 8 through 10. And really, the Thanksgiving is here is very interesting. He's thanking God for his promises. He says this, you told us if we sin, you'd send us away. But you also said you'd bring us back. You'd also said you'd bring us back. Thank you for your promises. Thank you for your provision. And you know, the most powerful prayers are those that are offered from a child who doesn't necessarily see what God is doing. And life is very, very difficult. And yet by God's grace, you know that he is there and you are called to walk by faith and not by sight. And you're able to say, thank you. Thank you, God, because I I trust in you. And I know you're an amazing God. Lastly is supplication, how to pray. So this is what you do. You want to adore him and, and have adoration. Then you want to have confession. This is acts. Then you want to have thanksgiving. And lastly, supplication. Pour your heart out to him. Interesting, he says, I'm going to go see the king. He could, he could take my life. I'm scared to death. Grant me mercy. Pour your heart out to God. You know, it took four months. Four months from the time. He took four or five days of prayer and fasting Four months for him to get to the king. What an amazing deal. And lastly, there's a call to prayer. Orangewood. This is a, a need is great. This is a call. This has been a, an amazing church. It's a great church in so many ways. But God, I, I long for so much more. Your, your elders long for so much more. We, we, we want to be a community that's, that's tighter. There's just too many of you that are, that are slipping through the tra- cracks. There's too many of you that are not being discipled. The reality is, is that I believe that God has called us here as a church to shine brightly for Christ Jesus and to advance Christ's kingdom. And the reality is, is you and I are called to be his disciples and ambassadors. We have to disciple you to do it. But you know, in our equipping center classes, about 25% of you come. And so we were realizing, man, we got, we got some problems. We can't disciple who we don't connect and so we can't be pouring into people who just aren't coming. So what are we doing? So, so we're wrestling with that, saying, God, what's, what's a better model? What's a better model to teach our people about you and living for you? I tell you what, shepherding our people, it's, it's, it needs a lot of repair. And we don't have, we don't have the pastoral staff we used to. We, we don't have the ability to do, this church in so many ways was founded with a, with a wonderful pastoral staff that provided amazing shepherding care. There's two and a half of us right now. Sorry, John, you're just half, part-time. And God is turning this church upside down. I love it because we're called to love one another. We're called to be in community. We're called to shepherd one another. And we're, we're saying, God, how do we do this? 
How do we do this in a way that makes sense, in a way that's loving for your people? We want to do a better job of that. And really what we're focusing on is that God, we think God's calling us to be uh, a tighter community, to, to be together and pray together and, and, and live together and, and love together in more of a small, uh, a small group setting. We need better focus on the future. You know, your elders are going to spend six hours this Friday. Six hours this Friday we set aside again for us to talk about, God, give us more clarity. God, where are we going? What are we doing? Help us because we love this church. We feel you're here. We see great things, but we long for more. God, would you please show us more your will? Call us together and pray. The reason we're in Nehemiah is Nehemiah had a time where he says, we're not, we're not in the shambles Nehemiah was in. There's not as much rubble. But Nehemiah was raised up to say, we got to build together. We got to build our lives together. We got to advance Christ's kingdom together. And every week I'm hoping and praying that God will cause us to hear his word and just be inflamed in our hearts saying, he wants more of us. He wants more of us individually. He wants more of us corporately. And let's seek his face, but it has to start with prayer. Two practical things. You should have a prayer place. You should be praying all the time without ceasing, but you should have a specific place that you can go and spend time with Jesus. Where is it? If you can't say right now in your mind, this is where I go. This is where I go to spend time with Jesus. You gotta get one, okay? Um, You're showing too much self-sufficiency, self-righteousness, self-satisfaction. Find a place. Secondly, secondly, find a person to pray with. Um, if you're married, you cannot have someone that's not your wife of an opposite sex, okay? Prayer is too personal. Prayer is too wonderful. Um, you, can't, you can't do that. Uh, but if you're single, uh, if you're a student, uh, married, we all need to have prayer partners. I'm going to encourage you to have one that's if you're, if you're married, have a guy. That's, if you're a guy or, you know, if you're a woman, have a woman. Who's your prayer partner? I'm saying right now, if you can't answer, where's my place of prayer and where's my prayer partner? Those are two things that you can write this week, work on and say, this is what I need to do because this place is changing and God's calling me to be a part of this as well. And I got to uh, make sure that I too am going before God because why? Because God needs it. Because God needs to be told what's going on. No, 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 no. Because God wants to take you and love you and hold you and, and mold you and bring you into his plan with more clarity. All right? All right, let's pray. Father God, I thank you for the amazing grace that we have, that we could come into your presence and tell you anything. God, we're so sinful in and of ourselves. The only way we come is through the blood of the spotless Lamb of God named Jesus. But we come boldly because we're yours. And God, you want us to lay our hearts before you, not because it's a revelation and new news to you. You know all things. You know the words before we say them. But God, you choose to use our prayers to accomplish your will. Glory to your name. But you also choose to use our prayers to align our lives to yours. God, I thank you for this church, but God, we got to be better at discipling. We got to be better at shepherding. We got to be better at loving one another. And we have to do all this on a foundation of prayer. Father, may it start with me. May it start with our pastors and elders, our deacons, our leaders, our women leaders. 
But God, may it permeate every single one of us so this place can shine ever so brightly for the glory of Christ, we pray. Amen.